Good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. It's good to uh, see you all here this morning. It's a lovely sunny day and it's great to be able to be gathering together to worship our God. At the end of this service, uh, we're going to be pleased to give thanks for Bertie White. And uh, his mum and dad have chosen our second song, not the first one. So we're looking forward to that. One of the differences between um, men and women is that men only start listening when I say something like this. Um, and that's, that's, that's just to remind the guys that we have um, our golf day um, planned. And if you're planning on coming to that, John Fuller would love to hear from you. Um, if you're as uh, allergic to golf as I am, um, but you like breakfast, you're still very welcome to come to breakfast. So um, please do let John or Martin know in the next few days if you're hoping to come. And more importantly, please do think of uh, friends of yours who you'd like to bring along with you. Um, For church members, um, you'll remember that the quarterly church meeting has been moved to Tuesday of this week. So it would be good for us to join together at that meeting. Right, let's... um, Uh, continue and start our worship um, by singing together um, a song reminding us that our God is not some modern invention. Our God is the God who has always been and always will be, and that God cares about each of our lives. So let's, when the music starts, let's stand and sing God of the Ages.
I don't know about you, but for me, it's sometimes much easier to grasp that God is the God of history, God is the God of the future, but we've just been asking that God will be the God of today. And as we're coming to God, we're going to pray to him, and it's great that we can come to him today as we are feeling today about what life brings to us today. So let's join in praying to the God who cares about us today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know each one of us. You know every little detail of our lives, both this morning, this week, and what will happen next week. And Lord, we thank you that you tell us to cast our cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, as we know that you know about us, you know how much we care about you too. You know every one here completely. And we thank you that you've made us. We thank you for the life you've given us. We thank you for the food that we've enjoyed. We thank you for the creation that you give us. Oh Lord, you have made everything that is so beautiful. And yet there's so much that's spoiled. There's so much that causes us sadness and causes you sadness. Oh Lord, we thank you that one day everything is going to be made beautiful. Everything is going to be made perfect. We thank you that one day every one of the people you've made is going to meet you and is going to give account of their lives. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to live looking for your smile every day, looking to please you, looking to know you, getting ready for that day when forever starts and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more lies, no more deception. Oh Lord, We pray that that will be a real comfort to those who grieve. We ask that that will be a real motivator for us who live. Oh Lord, help us to get our lives in perspective. Help us to know that we belong to you because you made us, if nothing else. And help us to look on everyone else as a wonderful creation of our great God. Yet, Lord, we see that things have gone horribly wrong. And we pray for those who suffer. We pray especially for those who are suffering in the Ukraine. Oh, Lord, we ask that you will bring peace. We pray that the warfare will end. We ask that the wickedness will stop. Oh Lord, we pray especially for your people who are in that country and are suffering. And Lord, we don't just pray for those in the Ukraine, but we know that all over this world, your people are suffering, and many of them are suffering because they love you. And Lord, we pray that for all of us, whether we've got an easy life or a hard life, 
if we belong to you, we pray that we will be people who share your light with this world. Who show what a difference God can make to fallen, broken sinners. Who show that there is a hope that goes beyond this life. That there is more to life than things and stuff and people and experiences. But that we are made to last forever. We are made to know the God who made us. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you are such a great God and ask that we will experience more of you. Oh Lord, we thank you that we don't have some vague guess at what God wants us to do. We thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we pray that you will give us ears that are sharp to hear what you're saying to us in our situation today. We ask, Lord, that you'll help John. We pray that your word will be explained by him in a way that comes powerfully and effectively into our minds and into our hearts and into our lives. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the children and young people have already heard about you. We thank you that they're going to hear about you again in the children's talk. And Lord, we ask that the seed that's sown in their lives will be obviously producing fruit. That you will be rescuing them from darkness and moving them into the kingdom of your son. And Lord, we pray that we will go beyond our families and that we will be sharing your good news with our workmates, our neighbours and our friends and that many of them will know the joy and peace which comes from knowing you. So Lord, do be with us. Lord, we know that we are sinners. We know that we fail so often. But we thank you that we don't have to pay to get back in your good books. We thank you that you loved us enough to give your only son. The son that you love with an immeasurable love to pay the penalty for sin. Oh Lord, we pray that that will give us the right response. That we won't be people who just talk about you, but we love you in a way that changes our lives. Amen. Right, children, it's time for the children's talk and John Hitch is going to do that. safely landed. Good. Good morning, children. Good to see you again this Sunday. And, um, and I wonder if you could think back about four weeks ago, and uh, what did you think that your parents started playing a trick on you by putting you to bed when the sun was out? Did any of you say, Mom, I can't go to bed yet. It's still daylight. Do you remember that? It took quite a while to adjust to getting to sleep. Perhaps you're still struggling with getting to sleep in daylight. And maybe they explained that we had to change the clocks to summertime. And, um, but we're often asking, aren't we, what's the time? 
perhaps when you're really young, it's what's the time, Mr. Wolf, but it's quite soon, what's the time? What time is dinner? At what time are we going swimming? What time does the train leave? How much time have I got to do this? How much time have I got to do that? And so I brought a clock to show you this morning, and um, it's really useful, isn't it, to be able to tell the time. But a long time ago, before people could afford their own clocks, um, they would listen out for the local church bells, and they would have bells in the tower. Have you heard a uh, bell ringing in a tower? Have you seen? Have you seen this one? Anyone know what that's called? Yeah, Annie. Big Ben. Big ben yeah, it's sort of nicknamed Big Ben. It's actually the, the striking clock, the bell inside that's called Big Ben, but we call the whole thing Big Ben normally. It's in uh, Westminster Palace, and it's a massive clock, and it chimes, and it plays a tune. Um, on the hour, and at quarter past and at half past, and um, and then it strikes the amount of hours it is. So if you're listening out, you can tell what the time is. So that was the way most people used to tell the time a long time ago. And But some people also used it as an opportunity to remind them to think about God. And so um, there's a plaque inside wherever the clockwork is. I expect it's, hopefully it's been put back up since they've restored the building. And um, these words go to the tune. And so it's not, it wasn't just, oh, it's 11 o'clock, but it was also the bells ring, oh, reminder. And this was some, some, a prayer that was put to the music. All through this hour, Lord be my guide, that by thy power no foot shall slide. So it's good, isn't it? So the clock not only told them the time, but it reminded them about God. And, um, so see if you can fit the word. We won't sing it, and I, I won't, I'll spare you me singing it, okay, because that wouldn't be very good. We, we've got to get past half past. Can you hear the clock? It's a bit quiet, isn't it? Now we're going to go up to court, but I want to get it onto the o'clock. It's playing part of the tune. Any of you recognise that tune? Perhaps you're a bit young to recognise that tune. It's called the Westminster Chimes. See if, if you're older, especially, see if these words can fit in. And then after it's played the tune, can you count with me how many chimes? How many chimes should it do on the hour? One. A bit more than one? Yeah, twelve. Yeah. And hopefully it'll do 12 if I haven't fiddled with it too much. I've been fiddling with this clock and it might... Right, so here we go. Hear the words. Okay, ready to count? One, two, three, four, five, six... Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble, aren't I? I have been fiddling with the clock too much. Oh dear. Okay, right. So we're we're, we're living an hour. This is sort of the modern British summer time of even an hour forward. But what does the Bible say to the question? What's the time? You don't know what the, might the Bible's answer be to that question. What's the time? There it is. It is time to seek the Lord. And that's what one of the prophets, Hosea, said. Um, and God's people were t- had turned away from God, and they were in a terrible way. And Hosea said, it is really time for you to seek the Lord. And it's not only him, but Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. What did Jesus say we should seek first? 
What did Jesus say we should seek first? Yeah? Seek the Lord first, yeah? Seek first the kingdom of God. But what does the word seek mean? What does the word seek mean? Yeah, Flynn? Yeah, look, look for. Perhaps we really use the word hide and seek, don't we? That's a game that we play. Some people go off and hide, and then we have to go and find them. Do we just have a sort of look around and say, no, I can't find them? What do you have to do when you're playing hide and seek? Yeah? You have to look everywhere, don't you? You have to leave no place unturned. Um, So if we have to look for God, does that mean he's hiding? Well, not exactly, because Paul in the Bible said that God actually isn't far away from each one of us. But Isaiah said that your sins have separated you from God so that he's hidden his face from you. So there is a way that we can't see God, we can't find God without seeking him. And we really have to, we really need to seek him because our sins separate us from God and that puts us in a really bad place. But there's a wonderful promise because some of you might be saying, I've been praying to God and he doesn't answer me. I've been looking for God and he he's not, doesn't seem to be replying. There's a wonderful promise that Jeremiah gives us. It says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants us to look with all of our heart. He wants us to turn away from our sin, turn to him. And there's a wonderful promise that when we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. Good. Well done. Okay, now, someone's going to take the clock out because we don't want that going off 14 o'clock in a in half an hour's time, do we? Good. Okay, go and sit down and thank you. Thanks, John. Well, we're going to sing again, and uh, we're going to be praising our God for just how great he is. So let's uh, join in singing O God, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hand has made.
Well, I just want to introduce the series we're now moving on to and introduce the reading which we're just going to have this morning. So we're moving on to a series now about Elisha and his times and ministry. Elisha, and that's going to take us up to the summer. We did do Elijah, those who were around might remember, a few years ago, and I wanted to carry on with Elisha, but I thought it would be good to have a bit of a gap, but now here we are moving on to Elisha. These are two of uh, uh, big prophets in the Bible, important prophets in the Bible, Elisha, Elijah, alphabetical order actually, Elijah and Elisha, it's easy to get them confused, there's some similarities about them. And they were about 850 BC. Well, why are we going on to Elisha? Well, God is at work in an obvious way in the time of Elisha, so that will make it interesting. God is speaking. Prophets speak God's word. So, in, a, in an extra way, we'll have God addressing situations. It is a time of challenge. In fact, in many ways, Elisha is an instrument of God's judgment. So, there'll be some challenge for the people then and for us as we listen. And yet, Elisha points in so many ways to Jesus. And the name Elisha actually means God is salvation. So we'll be pointed to the good news about Jesus as well as we go through the series. Well, we ended up last time, a long time ago, looking at the handover from Elijah to Elisha, which is in a part of the Bible called 2 Kings chapter 2. So we're not going to go there. We're going to start off in chapter 3 of 2 Kings. And I tell you, we are in at the deep end. The future weeks will be easier, but it's quite a tricky chapter to understand. There are twists and turns in it which are a bit unexpected, but we, we try not to, to dodge the difficult parts of the Bible here. So if we're doing a series and there's a big chapter on it, well, we feel it's right to pursue it, so we're going to do that this morning. And often we find, actually, as we understand these difficult chapters, that there are some rich and relevant lessons for us. So we're going to read 2 Kings 3 in a moment, but first I want to set the scene a little bit. It does involve wars and battles, and that's often the case in the Old Testament where land and who has it is so significant. So we're going to put a map up. Here's a map which I I hope you can see. If not, you'll still catch the gist of it. And um, there are four kings and four kingdoms in our account this morning. Now, it's mainly about, or aimed at, the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is on the downhill. It's on the downhill. They've disobeyed God. And God has said that time will soon be up for them. Ahab, who was king, and his family and his dynasty are very much limited in time. And we have a a new king, his son, Jehoram, who comes on the scene. And he's bad as well, but uh, not as bad as Ahab. Kingdom of Israel. And then also we have down here the kingdom of Moab. The kingdom of Moab. And Moab at that stage are part of the empire. So they're really owned, they belong, if you like, to Israel. 
And they'd supplied a, a, a lot of uh, stuff to Israel as, as part of the arrangement. And um, they, they gave 100,000 lambs a year to Israel and 100,000 rams' coats. And they decide when there is a new king that they're not going to do this anymore. They rebel. Well, Israel consents that there's going to be a shortage of roast lamb and that the price of woolly coats is going to go up. And they're not too keen on that. But even more, they're not keen on rebellion. And so the king of Israel, Jehoram, decides he needs to knock Moab into line and pay them a visit. But he wants some help. And so he asks the king to the south of him to join him. Here we are the king of Judah, the king of Judah. The king of Judah is a man called Jehoshaphat, who's basically a good king, and here he's happy to join the team and to team up with Israel to sort out Moab. Now, which way are they going to go? There's a bit of a problem with the Dead Sea in the way. You can see the blue bit down the middle. So which way are they going to go round to Moab? Well, they decide to go through Edom, which is our fourth kingdom and king. And Edom is a a junior partner, a junior partner to Judah, described as the deputy of Judah, the king is. And so the three kings join together and they want to make sure that Moab pays what it owes and on the journey they go into the wilderness and there they hit big problems. They hit big problems. And the different responses to that situation, and Elisha's involvement in that situation are really the meat of what we're looking at this morning, especially in the middle of the chapter. So we're going to read the chapter now, and hopefully with that in mind, kings, kingdoms, you'll make sense of what's happening, especially be able to tune in to some of the exchanges in the middle, which we're going to look at a little bit later in the service. So, 2 Kings 3 it is. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom 
And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings, Israel, king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah, or served, helped Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed pools of water. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that steam bed, stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hands and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with the stones. The next morning... About the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armour from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Harasheth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Well, I hope that helped make some sense of the reading. You probably have further questions, and I hope you'll have uh, some, some clarity on some of it as we'll look at it later. Thank you. Looking forward to
John explain that to us uh, shortly. But before that, we're going to sing again. So let's uh, stand and sing. I I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Are they great words? Let's join in singing them. should we react when things go wrong? When we hit a crisis? When our our plans just seem to fall apart? When we're desperate and, and we don't know what to do? Maybe you can relate to that situation and the events of this chapter will speak into that situation. And especially if we hit that situation and we've ignored God up until now. We've gone against his word. We know we're on a downward track. 
it's clear to us that it will end up in judgment and we hit a crisis. Maybe you can relate to that somewhat. Well, the events of this chapter will speak into that situation. As a nation, for decades, Israel had turned its back on God. Uh, The last king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, brought things to a new low. It was awful, the things that were happening in Israel. And God made clear in 1 Kings 22 that time was up for that dynasty. Now, Jehoram, Ahab's son, well, he's not as bad as his mum and dad. But he's still evil, according to verse 2. And we should be a bit wary, you know, of taking too much comfort from the fact that we're better than some others we could point the finger at. It is what God thinks of us that really matters. And Jehoram, it says, is still evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, Moab rebels, we've seen that as we introduced the reading. And uh, Jehoram makes no attempt to get God's view on the situation or to get God's direction from the way forward. He has his plans and he builds up his coalition and then off he sets with um, Israel and Judah and Edom to sort Moab out, to whip them into line. And his plans come unstuck in the desert. So that is a picture of uh, the desert, the wilderness of Edom. So that's the sort of territory we might want to have in mind. And they wander round and round for a week and there is no water. The wadis are dry and there's no oasis that they come up against or see. And the, the army and the livestock are desperate. A crisis hits the situation. It's all going horribly wrong for them. Let alone sorting out Moab, they're not even going to get there at this rate. And there are different responses to that situation, and I think we'll find them instructive. There was the introduction, hitting a crisis. It's the first one. One king's hopeless fatalism. One king's hopeless fatalism. Now, it's interesting that although Jehoram seemed to be godless, if you like, God now comes to his mind. And not just any God. There was a range he could have chosen from, from where he came from. But it is the Lord who is in his mind. It has been said that there are no atheists in a a crisis, no atheists in the trenches, they used to say, no atheists in a foxhole. And whilst that not might be totally true, you you have a a sense of something of the truth of it. And in fact, when I was looking up this morning that quote, I, I came across this on a Heart website, there are no atheists left in Ukraine now. One pastor said over Zoom, Churches are packed to capacity and people are weeping and seeking God as never before. Often when we hit crisis, it brings 
thoughts of God to our mind and maybe some things that we heard in the past come back to us and make us think. And perhaps you've found this. The things that are happening in your life, in your work situation, in your relationships, in your family, in your health, in the nation, things going wrong have jolted you and they've made you start to think about God in a way that you haven't done before or for ages. Well, what thoughts does this man have as he's stirred to concern about God in his crisis? Well, those thoughts really are hopeless and fatalistic. So in verse 10, Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And he says something similar to Elisha a few verses later in verse 13, second half of verse 13. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. He's very definite about this. He's hopeless and fatalistic. I think he has a bad conscience. Uh, He knows of God's words of judgment. And he assumes that it's going to cover all three of them now in what is going to unfold. There is no hope for him as far as he can see. And maybe you're prone to think like that, perhaps. Uh, Many just assume that it's God's prerogative to dig them out of trouble, but others think more seriously. And maybe they think, well, I've, I've neglected God I've taken no notice of him. Um, There is a a clear message of judgment in the Bible. Things are are, are catching up with me. There's no way out. Well, I I don't want to take away serious concern. I don't want you to just push away concern about God's displeasure and judgment. But no hope, no, no way out. Steady on, steady on in your thoughts, if that's the way you're thinking in your crisis. One king's hopeless fatalism. And then we get onto a different reaction, which is one king's wise advice. One king's wise advice. So Jehoshaphat has other ideas. This man is basically a good king who follows the Lord. He perhaps teams up a bit too quickly with bad alliances, but he's generally, his heart is in the right place. And this is what he has to say about the situation. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. He's done something similar before, actually, in Ahab's day. And he wants God's view on the situation. He wants to consult God's word. In those days, it was consulting the prophet who would speak God's word into the situation. And Elisha is, for some reason, we're not quite sure why, he's part of the pack, he's with the troops, he's there available. He's a good man, says Jehoshaphat, we should ask him and consult God's view on our situation. So you've got the king of Judah, he's giving good advice to the king of Israel in his fix. Don't despair. Go to God. 
listen to his word, get his direction. And uh, Jehoshaphat's advice travels through the centuries, you know. In our, in our fix, in our jam, it is good to turn to God. Maybe we've ignored God. Maybe we've tested his patience. But that's still the obvious place to go. It was interesting to read this morning that the Bible sales have shot up in the Ukraine. So there's obviously a desire in a lot of people to consult God, to get God's view on life and the situation. And whatever your background, and whatever your mess-ups, isn't this good advice to you this morning? There's lots of encouragement in the Bible to do that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come to me in the day of trouble, says the Lord in Psalm 50, and I will deliver you. So the three kings uh, trot off to Elisha. It's quite interesting. You've got these three national leaders, three senior politicians, and they're heading off together to see the prophet, to get some direction and advice for their situation. Well, how's that going to go? There's going to be some surprises in what Elisha says, probably if you concentrated as we read. But this is the general gist, God's remarkable grace. Main message of this morning, really, hence a slightly bigger font. God's remarkable grace. Well, maybe you're surprised at the start. Elisha doesn't seem terribly warm towards the king of Israel, does he? Verse 13, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And then in verse 14, as the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. See, it wasn't a small thing that they had rejected God, lock, stock and barrel for so long. And mercy, in a way, is not an easy thing or a casual thing. And he challenges him. Why aren't you going off to those that you've worshipped before all these years? Why aren't you going to your mum and dad's gods? And you know, sometimes our renewed interest in God does need to be challenged. It needs to be tested. Are we really turning to the Lord? Why aren't we carrying on with our God substitutes? Is this real? Is this genuine? In fact, it, it seems that he um, is he's only going to give advice on the situation because of the other king, because the king of Judah is there, Jehoshaphat. And because Jehoshaphat's there, he's going to speak into the situation. And, you know, we, de- we don't deserve to be heard because we have turned against God, we have rebelled against God, but because of a a righteous king, a descendant of David, because of Jesus, we we can be heard even in our mess. Because of Jesus, you you and I have have hope. Because he's acceptable, because he's brokered the deal through the cross. 
because he's our mediator, we can be heard even in our mess, despite what we've done. So Elisha agrees to ask God's counsel. And with the help of a little bit of music, he waits for God's word to come on the situation. Well, what is it? Well, it's full of grace and kindness. Doubly so, in fact. It, it, it promises satisfaction and it promises victory. The, the desert area would be filled with water. It wasn't that a storm was going to come over with wind and rain. No, it would be a clear miracle of God filling up the wadis with, with, with water for those who needed it. And the kings and the military and their four-legged friends that were with them were able to drink plenty and be refreshed. Verses 16 and 17. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. But God was going to do more. In a sense, we're saying that's only a piece of cake to God to do that. God was also going to give them victory over Moab, verse 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Doubly gracious, satisfaction, victory. And it seems as though God will use them as a source of judgment on Moab because typically in the Bible trees and fields were were to be spared but here there was to be a spoiling of the land. It was an act of, uh, of, of severe judgment on Moab for its actions and its past. And so, sure enough, the next morning, water is in abundance. Everyone can have what they want. The forces are revived. And Moab, when he knows the king's nearby, comes up and in the sunrise, the red sky of the sun, the reflection of of that to the Moabites make them think that the scene has become a scene of blood. It has happened before, actually. And they think that the kings have slaughtered each other, so are there for the taking. So they head in to the area, only to get ambushed by the troops from the three kingdoms and chased back into the Moab area. The cities are reclaimed. It happens, as Elisha said, God is doubly kind to a bad nation, He gives satisfaction and he gives victory. And uh, I think the message is clear. That is what God can give to wayward people. Satisfaction and victory. Everlasting life can be found through Jesus. Life that satisfies deep down, inwardly. We learnt of it last week in thinking about the life that comes through Christ. Satisfaction 
by God's mercy for those who don't deserve it. And victory too. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Victory even over the last enemy, the big enemy of death through Christ. Satisfaction and victory for wayward people. God's remarkable grace. Whatever our history. And that is a message for us. That in crisis we go to the Lord in repentance and we find grace. It's true for Israel. It's true for those who were reading Kings originally, who it was given to. True for us. Go to the Lord, seek his grace, despite our past and our mess. Seek his mercy. But, two things to do to finish. Here's the conclusion. There's a final twist. The story it doesn't end, does it, as you want it to. It's, there's an anticlimax, and actually, it's quite mystifying. So, uh, the Moabites, uh, they want to get out of their final bastion of defence, uh, and firstly, they try to do, to do that with 700 crack troops, trying to make a breakout, but that doesn't work. So, they do something which is obnoxious, obnoxious to us, obnoxious to God. The king of Moab sacrifices his son on the wall of the city. Anger is stirred up. There are different views as to quite what's happening here, which I haven't got time to go into, but this appalling act, it either stirs up the anger of their own troops for a final push, or it just so appalls and recoils at the attackers that they just head off and leave the scene. And Moab makes some comeback and has some reprieve. Well, why why does it end like this? It is puzzling. But I think if we think of the, the grand sweep of what's happening, I wonder if the Lord is saying, yeah, I am gracious. I heard you in this situation, but don't forget you haven't repented properly. Don't forget the situation is still downhill. Don't forget as things stand you are you are on a loser. There needs to be proper and deep repentance. And sometimes when we get into a fix, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've gone through it, we can call on God and he graciously helps. And we're tempted to just relapse. Return to life as normal. And the message here is seek a genuine repentance. Be committed to the Lord. Trust in him. Serve him. Come in real repentance and faith. So some words for when the crisis hits. One king's hopeless fatalism. One king's wise advice. God's remarkable grace. Just want to do one thing just to finish off. A bit unusual this time but I think it might help. You've heard the, the Three Kings song that we have at Christmas, We Three Kings of Orient are. Well, I, I've adapted it um, hurriedly this morning, so the, um, the, uh, the poetry is a bit clumsy, but I'm hoping it will act as a little bit of a recap on what we've just gone through. So I'll try and take in the main message as we do so. We Three Kings from the Middle East are... Desperate for water, we've travelled so far. Around the mountains, seeking some fountains. In a great crisis, we are. And the chorus is not a star of wonder, star of light. It's God is gracious, God is kind. 
Seek his mercy and see what you find. Because of Jesus, only through Jesus, there is a way out of your bind. As king of Israel, I've gone against God. Surely I have to pay with my blood. The scene is hopeless. Yes, a complete mess. I'm condemned and desperately sad. God is gracious. God is kind. Seek his mercy and see what you find. Because of Jesus, only through Jesus, there is a way out of your bind. As king of Judah, I've seen this before. To God you go and hear him some more. Jehoram, come off it. Go to the prophet. God's mercy you've got to explore. God is gracious. God is kind. Seek his mercy and see what you find. Because of Jesus, only through Jesus, there is a way out of your bind. And so to us, in our our dire straits, it is not hopeless, all down to fate. By God's grace, there is a safe place in repentance to God you must take. God is gracious. God is kind. Seek his mercy and see what you find. Because of Jesus, only through Jesus, there is a way out of your bind. Three kings in a crisis and what they needed to learn. Well, shall we turn from uh, poetry two hours old to a hymn 200 years old, which is much more established and well worth us singing. An adaption of immortal honours rest on Jesus' head. My God, my portion and my living bread. In him I live, upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction and despair. Shall we be pointed to Jesus as we sing this hymn and then before we give thanks for Bertie.
So do sit down. So this is nice, isn't it? Another opportunity to give thanks. So we'll be giving thanks for Bertie Vaughan-White and uh, we'll be giving thanks with Rob and Vicky and with Will and Prue and Tim this morning. So that's a delight for us. So Bertie was born on the 1st of March and so he's just over seven weeks old. And uh, when I went round to, to see them, round at Newark, which was very nice, uh, Psalm 145 came to my mind. And it stayed on my mind since. And I just want to make one or two connections before I read it, because I think there'll be some nice verses for us this morning. Um, it's a psalm which starts with a strong sense of praise. And we are uniting together to praise God for his kindness to them as a family in the giving of Bertie. It's got a strong note about God's greatness and their hymn choice was How Great Thou Art. So it ties in very nicely with that. It talks about God's wonderful and marvellous works. And little Bertie is a wonderful and marvellous work. Every child born is just an amazing miracle, isn't it, of God's design and kindness. So we praise him for that. And it talks about the generations and passing on God's message through the generation. And uh, Bertie's second name is Vaughan, uh, is uh, named that uh, in acknowledgement of Rob's uh, granddad, who was such a, an influence, such a godly influence on him, on them as a family. So you've got the generations reflected in the name, and ha- that has made a big impact already, and which they will seek to pass on to the next generation as they bring up Bertie. And for all of us, we join together thanksgiving, praising God for his greatness and his works, and we're reminded of the need for us, who have children, grandchildren, to pass on God's truth through the generations. So before I give thanks, let me read through the first five verses of Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendour of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. Can I give thanks about you? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, it is with heartfelt praise that we come to you this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways. And we give thanks for this new life of Bertie Vaughan White. We thank you for his healthy arrival and for the health of Vicky, for the blessing it is to them as a family. We do pray for Bertie in these uh, early years. We think of the way in which Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And we pray for him too in his development physically, mentally, socially and spiritually, that there may be great blessing on him in coming months and coming years. Do bless them as a family. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for their concern for Bertie. We thank you for their respect for their granddad. We thank you for their love for your greatness. And we pray, Lord, that you might bless them as a family together and help them to be an influence for good on Bertie. Give them special strength and wisdom as they seek to parent uh, him through these uh, years And as a family as a whole, with the wide age range that they have, Lord, may there be great blessing on all of them. And help us too, who have families, or who look on thoughtfully and concerned to the families around us, may we be an influence for good on coming generations, so that you are known to them and loved by them. So we rejoice together in your goodness, and praise your great and holy name praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. There we go.